Hello there! This show contains material which a truly free society would neither fear nor suppress. The language and concepts contained herein will not cause eternal torment in the place where the guy with the horns and pointed stick conducts his business. Dude. What's up, G? Oh, man, I've heard that so much in the last week. <laughs> I pulled a knife. Dang! I pulled a knife on Dave the other day, and he Did goes, you? oh, no, man, that'll just make me mad. That'll <laughs> <laughs> just make him more angry. <laughs> what is he, Godzilla? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, that's right. So what's the good word, man? What's the deal? Oh, things are okay. I'm enjoying this uh, Vin. Du Vin? Yes. The Vin? Let's mention this now, anyways. Uh... This is something you brought. It's a uh, Vincent Vega Sindoa. <laughs> is that what it's called? It's a uh, Vega Sindoa 2004 Cabernet Sauvignon Tempranillo. Yeah, I grabbed that at the local, well, the good big local liquor store. I forgot what it's called, but Bremer's, I think. Wine be us. I was looking for something a little different, something we haven't drank in a while. And uh, we have had a few Spanish cabs, I think, mm-hmm. in the past. But I uh, Argentinian. I, yeah, I went, uh, I went for that one, for the Vincent Vega. Vincent Vega. You know, I haven't seen Vincent in a while. Yeah. He's in... Uh, one of these days. The actor is in... Um, what's it? Hairspray now? Yeah, he plays a woman. Dressed in drag? Yeah. Oof. Yeah. I saw John- the previews for that and, and said, something is off with that woman. And then I realized it was it John was Travolta. John Revolta. Yeah. yeah. My friend Lisa loves John Travolta. Loves him to death. She really? never goes to the movie theaters, but she busted it out and went to the theater to see that one. Betsy, on the other hand... Um, she hates John Travolta, and that's the reason why she would not see a movie. But she went to go see Hairspray with a friend, I think. Yeah? Yeah, she said it was good, but not for kids. Oh, yeah, probably not. Yeah, some uh, sex jokes. <laughs> yeah, and the movie I'm going to talk about later is rated PG-13 for language, drug use, and some sexual references. Really? Some. Bestiality? Yes. So, you know, I you remember how I said there was something I wanted to talk about in the intro last week, but I forgot? Did you remember? I did remember what it was. And it's funny because we had spoken about it before the show, but it was probably the hottest, most humid day of the year last Saturday. It was. It was about 92 with, in the 90s. The humidity was like 96% or something. It was like just dripping outside. And then it had a splash of rain. It all evaporated immediately and increased the humidity yeah, even more. it was like 192%. So I went for a bike ride. And I love riding in the heat normally. But today, or that day, was a little different because uh, the humidity... It does well. Why? How do our bodies cool? We sweat. Mm-hmm. Water is evaporated, and uh, we get cooled through evaporation. Except I sweated, but no sweat was evaporating. Right? You should have I panted mean, like a dog. I was. It was all dripping off my tongue. It was gross. But it, it was remarkable because I didn't have a whole lot of time to ride, so I busted out my little seventeen and a half mile time trial course that I do. And each time I do it, I try to better my previous time. I mean, that's that's the goal. And I was like five minutes off my pace. I was five minutes slower because my body core temperature was so much higher since my sweat wasn't evaporating. And it's so funny because... Air resistance was heavier there. The air was heavier. That's true. The air was definitely denser. So that that's definitely a component. But, you know, it's amazing when you're riding and you were like, yesterday when I climbed this hell, I was climbing it in a bigger gear and it didn't hurt as much. <laughs> whiner what you should have done was just covered yourself in grease to make yourself go faster another travolta reference grease yeah you better shape up oh that kind of grease <laughs> yeah no, i just with, thought you were uh, going with the uh, no, no olivia neutron bomb no i didn't mean that you should cover yourself in the sounds of grease <laughs> no different kind of grease i'm talking about like the the white whale blubber grease that they use when they swim the english channel right they coat themselves <laughs> Oh, I don't know. What else? I did go for a bike ride today, and it was 69 out when I went, and uh, I, and the humidity was significantly less, so I, I did not have that problem. I was flying today. You know what I did this week? What you did? I well, perf- you worked. What, what did I did? I perfected, and this is like the anti-rich riding his bike thing, I perfected cinnamon rolls. <laughs> That's what I did. You mean baking? Oh, baking, yes. You were baking? Yes, I baked some cinnamon rolls, several batches of them, in fact. Well, that's I, cool. Because I went to the mall, because I had to pick something up, and I went to the mall, and I hate going to the mall, but when I'm there, the thing at the the mall that we have here in Syracuse is, when you walk in, 
certain sections, it smells like cinnamon everywhere. There used to be a um, a place called Cindy's Cinnamon it's Rolls. It's not there anymore? And Cindy's is gone. But the thing is, I was there at the mall going, you know what? While I'm here, I haven't had one of these things in about two years. And they're like the most decadent, like giant size of your head kind of cinnamon yeah, rolls. And they're chewy and they've got the best icing. And they're, and they're made they're with gooey and they're oozy goozy, as yeah, Emerald would say. I would roll in them. My, you <laughs> you would roll in the roll. Yeah. So I, I couldn't find the place. And then I went to a directory. You know those mall directories that look like kiosks? Yeah. No Cindy cinnamon rolls. They were gone. So I got left with the uh, hankering for a hunk of cinnamon roll. So I said, you know what? I'm, this time I'm going to do it. I'm going to learn how to make cinnamon rolls, and I'm going to make them from scratch, and I'm going to perfect the recipe. They're going to be the best things in the world. And after like three batches, perfect. Perfect. Yeah. yeah okay. So what did you do with the first two batches? Ate them. <laughs> well, everyone ate them. My family, everyone <laughs> gave some away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you know what? It, this is the one time I'm going to say something that's probably really cruel. Gluten rules. <laughs> It makes yeah. the most chewy, gooey dough in the world. Yes, I'm sorry. Well, there's no doubt about that. We're, that can't even be argued because it's just it's just true. So what I'm going to do, since I've got like lots of other parts to the cinnamon roll recipe, like the I perfected the icing, which is not just a standard butter and sugar icing. I've got that. This is awesome. And then I've got... Well, the, it's milk and confectionery sugar. Isn't that the standard icing on well, those the, things? That's what the standard is, but I made a better one. Ah. <laughs> oh. Secret ingredients, in fact. And then the, the other thing is the, the stuff that they put between the layers of the rolls, which is really basically just brown sugar, cinnamon, and butter. But what I'm going to try to do is find something that is gluten-free because I know that you like the sugary goodness. <laughs> well, sometimes I, wanna, I like the sugary goodness. I want to see if I can get some sort of gluten-free dough that has some sort of texture that resembles that because the well, rest of the stuff that I've got... That's asking a lot. <laughs> Well, I'm going to try to approximate it because everything else... That's asking way too much. Everything else is just like the most perfect cinnamon roll flavor. Well, that sounds good. You got any left to to, to admire? Can I at least admire them? No, no. They were finished this morning, believe me. That was what I had for breakfast. Oh, it's a good... (laughs) Breakfast of champions. And I had a whole grain cereal made with uh, amaranth, um, quinoa, and cornflakes. (laughs) Believe me, I've had had my share of uh, twigs and berries. (laughs) But that Twinks one... Twinks and berries good. But it is. I, it's one of my favorite things. I love granola. I love whole grain type of cereals. But when you've got cinnamon rolls in the fridge, you wake up in the morning, your body's saying, give me sugar. It's saying, eat me. <laughs> the cinnamon roll is saying... And then this big giant cake uh, drives out and uh, a little a little porthole opens on the top and John Belushi. Oh, never mind. That's, that's I had like this else. dancing devil on my shoulder going, eat the cinnamon roll. Yeah, so <laughs> that's was, right. Uh, Eat the cinnamon roll. Eat its brains out. You know you want it. <laughs> exactly. And uh, then the uh, little angel pops up on the other side. And then the devil sliced his head off. That's <laughs> and right. he won. That's right. Oh, uh, so that's know. it. I perfected them. Well, that's cool. And uh, uh, I don't know. You know what we've got next? I don't, tell me. We've got notes arranged in time. <laughs> then we should check out these notes arranged in time. Let's uh, check them out.
Sweet melodious sound of the Surefire Way with good stuff. That's right, good stuff by the Surefire Way. You know these for the astute listeners among us. You will notice that we have different microphones today. We have our backup microphones, and uh, I don't like these sound the sound of these as much as I like the good ones. It's well, weird. I would expect most of our listeners have like a spectro- spectrograph there, and they're comparing each show as they go well, along. And that's a nice dovetail to where we're going. <laughs> <laughs> They've got well, some uh, isotope uh, analyzers there. Well, it's just funny because when I bought these mics, I thought they sounded like the bomb, you know? I was like... <laughs> you sound like Steve Martin now. <laughs> these things are like the coolest mics in the world, and they are. They're, they're short KSM-27s, and they sound good, but those KSM-44s just sound better. Well, you know, then you get four speakers, and you get <laughs> quadraphonic sound. <laughs> yeah, and I... So then I said, hey, maybe it's the needle. That's <laughs> Uh, I had your basic diamond needle. I I went out and bought a moon rock needle. Spent forty five thousand dollars on that. Google right. Phonic. That's right. I have that tape. What was that? The Cruel Shoes. I think that was on the Cruel Shoes record, and I had it on cassette. I think he he did the um, did he do the King Tut on that one? I don't know if he did the King Tut, but one of my favorite bits on there, in addition to Google Phonic, was uh, he did a bit called, um, I don't know what it was called, but he said, we're talking about Steve Martin here. He said, uh, hey, uh, I'm in a good mood today. I finally got something I've always wanted, and that's important. It really is. I I finally got some uh, hostages. (laughs) There's so many people with hostages these days. I said, hey, I'd like some, too. I got, also, uh, I got 50 of them. I got a... T- I, what does he say? He says something like, I got 20 of them. They're, they're tied in a bag, hanging on a flagpole. They're really nice people. And um, and I'm going to... what he's Oh, God. I used to know this by heart. And then he says, and I'm going to do something bad to him unless I get my three demands. And he says, um, I want a million dollars in cash, a getaway car, and I want the letter M stricken from the English language. And then he says, you see, you got to say a really crazy one. This way you complete insanity when you're done. And then he goes, getaway car. <laughs> right. Anyway, I thought that was pretty Steve funny. Martin, in his stand-up routines, he was way more intelligent than his audience. <laughs> and he perpetually had an arrow through his head. Right. And, and that the, was part of it. He, you know, he was pretending to be the fool, but he was really smart. And he'd bust out the banjo and play a few licks on the banjo. Pretty good banjoist. Yeah. One of my favorite Banjist. Steve Martin deals is uh when he said i know how to be a millionaire first get a million dollars he came on saturday night live and he did this thing he was the guest host once and uh, he came out and he said uh i'm going to tell you about some things that i truly believe and then the the lights dimmed and they played some you know sort of mood music and he said um i believe sex is the most wholesome and natural thing money can buy (laughs) And he said, I also believe it is derogatory to refer to women's breasts as gazangas, apples, and Winnebago's. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> 
And then he went on and on with more of these. But when he said sex is the most wholesome natural thing, pause, pause, pause. <laughs> right. Oh, and then he said, oh, the, he started out with, I believe in going to church every Sunday unless there's a game on. Right. <laughs> yeah, he's he's got that, that killer punchline. He I, says it with a straight face. Too. You know, I, I didn't, I wasn't a huge Martin fan in the late 70s and early 80s when he, you know, I got a little tired of the, well, excuse me. Well, you know, shtick, it was paying know. his bills. Yeah. But, and I, I, and then I went and saw Dead Men Wear Black, I think it was. Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Don't Wear Plaid, yeah. And I was like, okay, this guy might have a little bit of talent. But then a friend of mine gave me the Cruel Shoes tape, and I heard Google Phonics, and uh, I was a believer. Yeah. Hey, you know, I saw this television show this week. Amazing. Okay. I've been watching, and I think I mentioned this in the show before, I've been watching BBC television, Gordon Ramsay kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. But they've got this other show. It's called Top Gear. Yeah, I've seen that. You've it's seen got that? The, uh, the British guy, and it's a it's a car show. Yeah, and maybe these are the new episodes, but um, there are two hosts now. There's that huge, gigantic, tall British, British guy. guy. Yeah, who? how can he fit in a Ford GT40? I don't know, but he owns one. And, and all of these guys on the show, they know how to drive. I mean, they're not just, we love cars and let's review them. These yeah. guys, they take them out on the track and they beat the crap out of them. But um, there are two hosts, and I was just finding this, this show to be hilarious because it's not mixing just gearheads with some entertainment. It's mixing gearheads with the most hilarious entertainment you've ever seen, where they, they put this challenge together where they're going to make their own uh, amphibious car. That sounds like Junkyard Wars. Well... John, is this the darkest wine bottle in the world? It's black. You can't even see through it to see how much liquid's in it. There's no liquid in it. That's why it's uh, it's empty. <laughs> it's because we've been consuming it. But we've been imbibing. On the last show that I saw, they, they took this Chevy car, this... I don't even know what model. It might be a Chevy... Um, Nova? No, it wasn't a Nova. Chevette? It was one of the Corsica, Corvette? maybe. It was <laughs> Corsica. It, it's it's this Lumina. Chev- they all this, end in uh. But they have it in the UK, and it's called something else, and I don't remember what it is. Anyways, they took it out to their track that they usually take supercars out on. They took it out to the track, and what they did is they invited all the people who are friends of theirs and um, some luminaries that they happen to be related to or know... And they said, come out to the track, and we'll see who can get the best time on the track with this piece of crap car. And who shows up? Jackie Stewart. No, they they have all these... Jackie weird, Chan. These people that I wouldn't recognize. And then some footballer shows up, who's some famous footballer. And Rick Wakeman showed up. Rick Wakeman. <laughs> Rick Wakeman showed up. It, for those who don't know, he was uh, one of the keyboard players in Yes... Right. original original keyboard player and yes famous for uh, not a fan actually he's because you know why he had no left hand <laughs> he's looking kind of old even so I, when he looked kind of young he looked kind of old but anyways rick wakeman shows up and while these other guys are driving out on the track they've got this whole tea surface set up on the side of the track and they're, they're having eating. crumpets were they're, they they were having little cakes and and tea and everything and then every time someone else went on that track rick wakeman's playing this little keyboard like doing the the whole silent movie score to them wow. that's kind of cool <laughs> anyways i thought that was hilarious so. i told you about the time uh, john anderson flitted into our booth at the nam show yes you did i'm john anderson. i'm john anderson and he's spinning and unicorns showed up at one point yeah it was very odd but it was it was john anderson rainbow was, spewed out of his forehead it's kind of cool just to hang with john anderson for a little while he was and wearing you know, crystals i bet do you know uh oh god what's that bassist's name he used to be james taylor's bassist he has the beard down to his knees and he played um on the Phil Collins Sue Sue Studio video. Oh, I know who you're talking about, too. Uh, uh, it's going to come to me right after we But yeah, he off. wandered into our booth and hung out for a couple hours once, too. That was kind of cool. So anyway, we're in the middle. We're in the meat. Yes. Where's the beef, baby? Now it is time for sports. <laughs> and now we dance. Ooh, ooh. On sprockets. You know, I've talked about the Floyd Landis thing a lot. Well, not a lot, but... Uh, incessantly you no that's not really true but everybody's aware that uh, who listens to the show knows that i i ride the bike every once in a while and uh you know i follow uh, most of the pro european grand tour circuit and of course floyd landis won the 2006 tour de france and then there was uh, the issue that uh, allegedly he had exogenous uh, testosterone in his urine samples and then that went to litigation so the other day i was searching around the internet and I found a PDF from the 
California Criminologists Association or something? Yeah, it's some journal of criminologists. It's the uh, CAC. The California Association of Criminologists. That's exactly what it is. And this is uh, like a probably a quarterly or something like that newsletter for the kind of people yes. who do the things that Quincy used to do for real. You know, the CSI type stuff. CSI. You know, these are the guys who have access to the million dollar spectrometers and the really fancy gear. And guess what? In the California Association of Criminologists uh, quarterly newsletter, there's an article about Floyd Landis. Special feature, the Floyd Landis sports doping case. By Bob Blackledge. Bob Blackledge. And this interested me because he was going to start looking at the case as a criminologist would. This is a man who was a, he must be some sort of biochemist and he's trained in using, you know, they don't really list his credentials, but from reading the piece, and it's a very in-depth, detailed, well-written, fairly long, you know, seven, eight page piece, um, I got the impression that he was a man who is, uh, his job when he, I think he's retired now, but pre-retirement, his job was to certify forensics labs. And these these forensics labs use the same gear that the laboratory in France that uh, tested Landis's and Armstrong's and everybody else's pea samples for the last 10 or 12 years. Yeah, he's he's basically looking at this and saying, would this lab, based on the procedures that they used in this case, would this lab be able to pass muster? Would they be able to get certification in... Under his watch. Under his watch, yeah. Yeah, and... He prefaces the the piece by saying, I'm not a cycling fan. I don't know who Floyd Landis was. I don't have no dog in this fight. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I don't have a dog in this fight, but I want to see if their standards live up to mine. And, you know, there's a lot of science in there. There, I mean, you know, a lot of it I didn't understand, and you really have to know the, the machinery and you essentially have to be a biochemist at the at the essence to really get into what these guys are doing because it's pretty hardcore science. Well, that's what really struck me. And you said you had a revelation. Yeah, I had a revelation. When I'm reading this, well, w- let me go back. Whenever anyone hears that something has gone out for a like DNA test or paternity test or whatever kind of test, you think that there's some sort of test and there's like this definitive true false answer. It goes out for a test and it says, oh, yep. This this thing turned blue, so therefore there is there is a positive result, negative result, whatever it is, whatever the case may be. Pee on a colored stick, and suddenly Something you have like a result. That. Yeah. Well, the revelation I had reading this was for these. You're pregnant for these doping standards. I am pregnant. No, for these doping tests, it's not like that. It's more like they look at the area under curves and they look to see if they're within certain ranges and they have certain percentages of other percentages. And they have to do multiple tests. And this isn't, this is more like art. This is not science almost. I mean, this is almost like you have to be a skilled tester. You have to well, know how to work that equipment. You re- yeah. I mean, it's, it's, well, I, I would call it a science, but I mean, the difference is that they, they're not making an idiot proof. Right. The, the pregnancy tests uh, are meant to be idiot proof. So every, pregnant idiot in the world can get a proper answer apparently but i mean this is this is something different this is a little bit more involved and yes it would be nice if they could create a simple four dollar test that you could buy at the local eckerd's or walmart where floyd lannis could just get off his bike and pee on the stick and go okay he's clean but this science is way more involved and and that's because the the people who are cheating are learning much more devious and it's technical and type stuff. Yeah, they're learning very high tech ways of cheating. And yes, I'm not denying that there's cheaters out there. There's just a percentage of the pro peloton, the pro cyclists, or the pro tennis players, or the pro baseball players who are cheating. And as we talked about a month ago or so, you know, it's not just cyclists. I mean, there's oh, cheating. Yeah. There's cheating everywhere. So continue. Well, the, the thing that I wanted to say was. When I heard about the whole Floyd Landis thing, and I always joked about, oh, geez, more Floyd Landis things, and, and I'm I'm joking that, well, yeah, great, he's, they found this stuff, and of course he's going to deny it because that's the way it goes, that's you know. That's what they do. That's what they do. Deniers deny. But I'm, I'm looking at this saying, wait a minute, the rest of the world doesn't realize that this is not like a cut and dry case. I mean, I was dismissive of it because I realized, or I, or I thought that anytime someone says, well, he came up as a positive test... That it was one of those things where, you know, the, the stick turned blue. He was 
He was uh, found guilty, and now he's trying to worm his way out of it. But the reality is, based on this article, there was more stuff wrong with the the testing procedures, and it wasn't just like weird clinical, forgot to carry a one type stuff. There's no way I would believe anything coming out of this lab. Yeah. It, the, it's like going into a restaurant and seeing rats all over the air and saying, oh, yeah, we're clean. The, there are rules for both sides, right? There are rules of conduct for both sides. The rules for the cyclists are don't use steroids, don't blood dope, don't cheat. The rules for the labs are follow these procedures, calibrate your equipment, make sure you're performing this test to what you believe to be 100% of the best of your ability to carry out a proper, fair, and accurate test and precise. Right. And this lab, I mean, starting with uh, procedural problems and chain of custody uh, problems, they were they were testing samples that were labeled with apparently every you're not supposed to know whose sample you're testing right and they're assigned some sort of like six digit number one oh five two nine one okay so i'm i'm testing sample one oh five two nine one and it's a cyclist has a, a specific number yeah yeah and well i don't know all of that but i don't know if it's true the next round that he gets tested he might have a different number then you know either way it, the cyclist is, is is identified by a number not by a name so it's it's supposedly anonymous but when you look at the lab's paperwork what they found what landis's defense team and this criminologist found was that there were like whiteout you know they would right. completely different numbers were tested in other words you can't be certain that the sample that was tested was even landis's and they they didn't follow any of the written procedure for typographical errors. Like if you write the wrong number, you're not supposed to white it out or go over it with a sharpie. You're supposed to draw one line through it and then put the correct number next to it. This way they can see what the old number was supposed to be that you wrote and the new number is. And they didn't follow any of these things. Well, and that's the other thing is that, I mean, you could look at this article and say, oh, well, you know, this guy is trying to say, well, the, the French the French system doesn't stand up to the American standards. That's no, not no, really no, no. what he's saying. The, the thing that he even found in this article was they were not even following their own procedures. Exactly. That's that's the key. They weren't following their own procedures. And for me, one of the biggest problems, and I didn't learn this from this article. I learned it long ago just as a fan who followed the, the pro cycling circuit. What they, they, they split the urine sample in half, and they create an A sample, and they create a B sample, and they test the A sample. And they taste the same, by the way. Yeah, and and a floor wax. And guess what? When when you challenge the results of the A sample, they then test the B sample, and the same lab tests it. It right. just makes good scientific sense to me that that sample should go to another lab, and you should have the option of getting an independent lab, let's say even at your own expense. Right. You should have the option of at your own expense of sending a piece of that B sample or a C sample or whatever to an independent How lab. About a P sample? It could be the P sample, the A, B, and the P. And that just doesn't happen. The B sample is tested by the same lab that tested the A sample. Well, how many people... Raise your hands. How many people out there see problems with that? I see a lot of hands up. There's one. Well, I had my... I'm, I'm raising something John's else. raising his hand and well, he's not wearing pants. <laughs> but here's the deal. I mean, for people who are going to read this article, we'll put a link to it on the, the blog... But it's hardcore geek shit. It, it is times. hardcore, but for me, the bottom line is, okay, they didn't even follow their own procedures. You couldn't tell whose sample was whose because they had the wrong numbers labeled on everything. And then they whited them out, and then and then they wrote, like, you know, 655321. Right. And then suddenly Alex Dulage appeared, and his DNA was everywhere. And then they looked at the equipment... Because apparently you have to clean the equipment out regularly because... Well, you have to calibrate the equipment Well, you regularly. have to cal calibrate it and clean it out because otherwise it can be contaminated and other people's samples can contaminate the results. Ew. Yeah. And and from what I was reading, I don't know if, if this was the truth or not, but the, what I gathered is at some point, if they're not recalibrated or and recharged with like the inert gases, that they can start giving the same result no matter what you put in them. And this is what oh, they It just doing. kicks out a number. It says 42. Right. That's all it does after a while. Every single time. 
And, and no matter what, I mean, you could start with with uh, a can of ham, or you can just like <laughs> Hormel chili, and it's always going to come out forty two. So no matter what, these guys are not, not cleaning their equipment. And then the person who wrote, I mean, literally, literally wrote the manual on how to maintain these machines was appalled by how poorly these things were maintained because he was brought up as a witness. Yeah, this guy was. Yeah, or not not the guy who wrote this article. No, the, the, the right. guy, the guy who he was part of the well, Landis defense. My team. question is, where was this guy when Landis needed him? The guy right. who wrote this California criminologist piece. And what I love about this is that you know, I, if this guy were on the stand, he would probably get asked, um, "Well, what uh, what expertise do you have that allows you to be an expertise?" He's been using the same Hewlett Packard spectrometer <laughs> for twenty years that the French lab used, so he knows a little something about this piece of equipment. And it's some obscenely expensive, very precise, high tech thing, but it has to be maintained right and properly. And that wasn't happening. What what, what did he say in this article? The the maintenance schedule for that lab, they claimed, was once a month. In his estimation, it should be once a week, but the lab wasn't even doing it once a month. Right. They said that their standard was once a month, which was poor. Right. And, and they, they weren't, weren't even living up to their own standard. Right. Which was, I think they hadn't done it for several months. I have so many problems with this case. I mean, I'm, I'm into the cycling scene, so this is, you know, this matters to me. But, I mean, the amount, the, the amount that Floyd Landis's life was ruined by this really can't even be measured. If this never happened, he would have immediately been signed by Wheaties to be on the next Wheaties right. box. He would have been signed by Nike. His team was dissolved. The The guy who headed the team dissolved it immediately when this happened because a lot of the sponsors started they didn't want to be and pulling out. So the team, which would be in existence now had this not happened, is gone. I mean, the certainly the loss to Landis, and money only, is tens of millions of dollars. Right. I mean, it's been over a year now. I mean, I don't even know what that would be worth. You know, all the endorsement spots and and whatnot. But I but mean, let's talk about ten- the anonymity thing too, because the lab was right. supposed to be talking or looking at these samples as just they're you know, not they're, supposed they're to know whose who's samples they're testing. It, it, it could be you know Aristotle. I don't know. Right. They're it just could numbers. Be Galileo's finger. They're supposedly just numbers to the lab, and maybe if they screwed up the numbers, okay, we screwed up someone's numbers, but we didn't know it was Landis. Landis is the one who was having the problem here. We just thought it was a number. Well, the reality is. Landis has a bad hip, a bum hip. He, he had. Had a bum hip. He's had since had a replacement. Right. And he was scheduled to have the replacement after the tour. And he got cleared to have certain medications to alleviate the arthritic hip so that he was going to have the replacement. Cortisone. So he had cortisone in his system and he was cleared to have that. So every single test, every single pee in the cup, there was one guy who had extra cortisone in it and it was him. Right. And he was, it may, may have been more than him, but there may have been somebody else cleared. But certainly, but he, but he was the one who was, you know, in this case. So they knew that they, you could make a strong argument that it wouldn't take a whole lot to rec- recognize that in certain tests, this is Landis's P. This is not yeah. number five two seven. This is Landis. Yeah, this is Landis. And if there was somebody in the lab who wanted to, um, you know, do something. Um, um, nefarious, nefarious, sinister, sinister left. Uh, they could have done that. They could have easily recognized his samples from the uh, the cortisone, the the peak on the graph that represents cortisone. And again, there's some hardcore science in this stuff. And I, not being a biochemist and not being trained in the Hewlett Packard spectrograph, it reminds me of my cousin Vinny. What test did you use to figure that? Well, I used a Hewlett Packard 9700. Is that thing fuel injected? Do you remember that stupid scene? I don't remember much yeah. of that, but I just remember Marissa Tomei coming out with the uh, differences. <laughs> My between. biological clock is ticking. <laughs> and the other, the other thing that you know, we could go on and on about this article, but we should read well, it. Well, wait, but wait a minute, read the last paragraph though. Scroll to the basically. We, you know, he demonstrates his case. He has little um, graphic excerpts from the documentation in the Landis files of the crossouts and the whiteouts showing that their own procedural things weren't followed. But of course, it ends. Uh, there's a there's closure at the end, and basically, there's a final paragraph. And um, John is searching for it as I'm here, groping for words, trying to fill the dead air. Yes, got it. 
All right. So read the uh, the last paragraph, which is essentially the summation of the previous nine pages. Okay. LNDD is that the uh, the French LNDD? Lab? That's the French lab. It okay. stands for Laboratoire National. Blah blah blah. Dopage something. Dopage demonstrators or something. Yeah. Anyways, uh, where LNDD's data presented at an actual criminal trial before a jury in the ad- adversarial U.S. court system, I wager the trial would never have even reached the stage of closing arguments. At the conclusion of the prosecution's case, the judge would opine that the government had not produced a prima facie case and would render a direct verdict of not guilty. What does prima facie mean? In On its face. On its face. Yeah, okay. So basically they hadn't provided enough evidence, plus their evidence sucked. Right. And well, one of the things I wanted to mention about their evidence was one of the things that I, I was thinking about, you know, the stick turns blue. Well... One of the things that they have to have is some sort of criteria for them to say, oh, this is positive or negative, right? Someone's got to say there's a, there's a limit. Well, there was a number in, in one of these tests where they said if it reached, you know, over 4% or 6% or something like that of a difference, then we say that that is positive. In one of their tests, it didn't even reach that, and they still said, oh, it's positive. Well, yeah, well, there were four criterium in one of the tests, and three out of four have to be over that. You may be thinking of something else, but I, I, there's one example that I'm thinking of where there were four values they searched for when they performed this one test, and three out of four of those values have to be over this particular limit to even go on to the next step for it to even be positive. But only one of them was over, and it was over right. by like 4% or something. Right. That's what I'm thinking of. Is they're basically, they're not even raising the red flag based on their own standards. It's almost as if you can say, someone in the lab said, oh, this is Landis's. Let's raise the red flag prematurely and with just a modicum of evidence, not with even within our own tolerances, they would even do it. And uh, I guess the the last thought on this this issue is... The person who wrote this article for the California forensics thing. It's Floyd Landis' father. It could have been. He talked about how these various governing bodies who are prosecuting Landis are proud of their 100% prosecution rate. Conviction rate. Their 100% conviction rate. You know, well, with these standards, well, the Salem Witch Trial had 100% conviction rate, too. And it was apparently about as fair as this. And, of course, that's where the phrase witch hunt comes from. Right. And I I saw a... uh, a it was a, a psychological thriller movie. It's called Fracture with... Uh, Fractal? What's his, What's that guy's name? Gerard uh, Depardieu? Um, what's Charlie the, Bronson? The, the guy in, in the uh, million dollar uh, Indian. <laughs> the, yeah. world, the world's fastest uh, dog. Yeah. <laughs> Indian. I can't think of his name. The world's but, fastest um, Indian. Yeah, that guy. Anyways. The, the same uh, guy who was Hannibal Lecter. Right. Hannibal Lecter is in this movie and he plays a killer. And he, well, there's a surprise. There's a surprise. And he has this budding lawyer in the DA's office who has this 99% conviction rate. And the, I think the, uh, the defense or someone in the, the, uh, the other side, they basically point out, well, yeah, you can have a 99% conviction rate if you get to pick and choose your cases. And that's what it is. I mean, this guy in this movie got to pick and choose which cases he was going to take because he knew he was going to get a conviction. Right. The lab knows it's going to get a conviction because once you say you're guilty, no one ever goes And then they leak it to the press, which is what happened. Well, and of course, the exclamation point on this, and, and that'll be the last word on this, is that the French Open this summer did not send their samples to that LNND lab. That's the lab just outside of Paris. The French Open, the big tennis tournament, I'm going to say it again, did not send their samples to that lab. They They drank them. They sent them across the pond to Montreal, and they claimed it was because the lab was cheaper for financial reasons. Okay, fine. They have to say that, right? But I think anybody— I don't care if they save face by saying that. But if they're going to a different lab, all it says to me is they don't trust that lab. Yeah, they don't trust that lab, and I don't think that lab should be trusted. I've said it before. I've said it again. I don't think the French lab or the French Open is hurting for money. Right. And this article basically— summarizes Landis's defense argument, but it does it from a completely, um, what, what's the word I want? A completely um, not related objective. to Landis. Objective, thank you. It summarizes Landis's defense from a completely objective source. It's not Landis's lawyers and Landis's paid experts and all that. This is an independent expert who didn't even know anything about cycling and just said, I'm going to look at this and see if this stuff flies, and it doesn't fly. 
Yeah, I'm glad you said that to me because uh, I joked a lot about it. You did, and I I took a little umbrage at the jokes because, you know, I'm a number. Because you drink urine. <laughs> And you have a problem with people who don't like it. You know, I had a friend who he and his dad used to own a little cleaning company uh, years ago, and they they cleaned a lot of doctors' offices. And to make a little money on the side, I helped them. I would do some cleaning. And well, what's the best? My way to friend start Kevin, urine. Kevin, you remember? Yeah, I remember we used to have the parties at Kevin's oh. house. But anyway, several of the doctors' offices that they would clean, and I would help, were urologists. And in every refrigerator, there was a big jug of lemonade. So it must be like a urologist joke that they have lemonade in their fridge. Anyway. Let's uh, let's play some more tunage. You want to play some tunes? Yeah, and I think this is going to be some interesting tunage. It's it's diff- very different than the last tune we played. <laughs>
Cool. That was Video Gum Culture with uh, a song called Red, no? Yes. And I guess what many people find unlistenable, we love. <laughs> I'm going to track these guys down and uh, look at them through their bedroom windows. <laughs> I think they're pretty amazing, and I think they should really be tested for exogenous uh, testosterone. testosterone. That's right, but as long as it's a fair test. Yeah. You know, I, I went to see a movie uh, last night. As you are wont to do. I sometimes go to the uh, MWPAI.org, those who will not sell me tickets to the Concerts in the Court. It is going to be a great Concerts in the Court series this year. It's phenomenal. Other than Who's that, showing up? Well, Roger McGuinn from The Birds. Really? Is playing. And then there's this band called the Hot Club of San Francisco, which plays this sort of um, uh, acoustic kind of jazz, you know, uh, parlor music or something. I guess they would have called it in 1900, you know. Parlor music? Yeah, something like that. And then there's a hardcore, uh, a real jazz fusion band coming. It's going to be, it's going to be an amazing season. But I, I watched a film last night called La Vie en Rose, which is, uh, French. Roughly- it's a French film uh, directed by Olivier Dahan, a 2007 film rated PG-13 for strong language, drug use, and some sexual references. And extra testosterone. Exogenous testosterone in the samples. 140 minutes, and of course it's subtitled. For those who speak French, you don't need the subtitles. They're distractions. They're, they're, just, they're just annoying. And I'm not going to talk about this film too much because while I thought it was a really nice sort of dramatic biography of the singer Edith Piaf, I found it very difficult to watch because while... She was like a three feet tall, three foot tall She was four foot eight and she was very frail and I suspect she had celiac disease because that's a a wasting disease or Crohn's disease or something, you know. One of the reasons I suspect she was so frail is because she had some illness she was, was not aware of. Uh, for those who aren't aware, and while I had heard of Edith Piaf, I didn't know that much about her. She was kind of a pop singer in Paris and France in the 40s and 50s who had a lot of huge hits, and people just loved her. You know, we played a song by Lev Gerben, and you said something like, this song just reminds me of sitting at a cafe by the Rhone, mm-hmm. and and that's what Edith Piaf is. They, you, when you hear Edith Piaf, and if you're, especially if you're French, you think of France. You think, think of, of red windmills. <laughs> well, that could be too. And while I, I don't think she had, I wouldn't call her life tragic in the sense that, you know, her parents died when she was two and she was put on a slave ship and made to scuba dive for pearls or something ridiculous. Scuba dive for pearls? I would say that her life had tragicness about it. Did you know a guy named the Chicken Man? (laughs) That's right. And this film was very hard to watch because the tragicness of her life was played out perfectly. I mean, they showed so many details of her youth and beyond uh, in, in graphic detail about why her life was was tragic and contained tragicness. And yet at the same time, she was this amazing singer and she sang all these really great hits that everybody uh, knew. And I would say Edith Piaf is divorced two generations from us. I would say she is probably, probably part of our grandparents' generation mm-hmm. more than our own. And while Our grandparents, had they been French, would... Well, no, she played the American concert hall circuit and, and had quite a bit of fame in the U.S. as well. Um, but to to those who are to the franc the french the francophiles um she was everything apparently in the late 40s and 50s i prefer and the uh, freedom toast i prefer the crucifixion of the crucificate <laughs> now isn't this the same old story all over again well in many ways right right the, famous person there's those it all VH1 away stories behind the music i mean they could do a behind the music couldn't tommy lee hang with edith piaf i totally think they could and they'd probably get along except he's just would tower course, over his, her. His unit is as big as her. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, those are the rumors. Yeah, according rumors. to the, according to the internet video that was released. Yeah, his his uh, penile penile unit <laughs> was perhaps bigger than her. So I guess what I'm saying is, um, yeah, this was a really nice piece of work. It was just a, a wonderful sketch, a wonderful um, sculpture of it. Just captured her life as I knew it. And vignette. It was to a, use the French term. Yeah, a wonderful vignette, and it. it I mean, it was basically an accurate dramatic portrayal of her life. Had but a certain, yet, I don't know what. <laughs> Yeah, it did. But I I don't think I could watch this film again because when I see someone with that kind of talent, you know, abusing themselves 
And going through that kind of, um, again, tragedy is too strong of a word, but going through that kind of self-abuse and torture. Self-destruction. It's it's really painful for me to watch because, you know, this lady had some pipes and she could really sing. I mean, she died when she was like 48 or something and she looked like she was 80, you know? I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it, that is tragic. That is where I would use the word tragic. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the same thing all over again. You know, you got the whole, uh, Kurt Cobain syndrome, Elvis. <laughs> Elvis had help. He had the doctor helping him out there, <laughs> right? You know, when you have a personal physician as your manager who can prescribe you any drug you want, it's a bit of a bonus. I'm feeling like a Percocet today, Doc. <laughs> okay, here's a prescription for 100 How would those them. taste with peanut butter and bacon? How would those taste with uh, a peanut butter and bologna uh, casserole? <laughs> That's right. Anyway, I think, uh, so yeah, I definitely, I'm, I'm going to say I'm going to give this film a thumb up, even though Mr. Ebert has rescinded permission for anyone doing film reviews to use the thumb can we use other body parts? That's right. And can we raise them? Tommy Lee is giving it something up. <laughs> I, I give it my uh, toe digit up. One of them. Anyway, <laughs> let's call it a show anyway. Oh! That's sassy. It's uh, spicy. I like That's it. a spicy meatball. Wednesday is Prince Spaghetti Day. Is it? That's what the commercials used Dave to say. Dave Rigetti is... You're Italian. You know that better than me. Every day is spaghetti day for me. That's right. We love the pasta. Anyway, this is Rich Wilgus, and you've been listening to another fine installment of Bloodthirsty Vegetarian. And he's right. It is Rich Wilgus. And I'm John Tellerico. That's right. And uh, check out the website, www.bloodyveg.com. Check out the forum. Participate even. Even. Yeah, we haven't had any participation in a few months. Bloodyveg.com slash forum. And you can leave us email, Chris H, the hockey fan, not garlic Chris, to feedback at bloodyveg.com. I'm going to be doing some garlic today. I That's think. cool. We got lots of garlic for John. Anyway, you're listening to the VIB. 